I don't, want, I don't want you guys to think this is, this is a lecture or a sermon. I want this to be a conversation. I want this to be something you can participate in. However, um, I have a lot of information that I do want to give you, things that I, I really believe that, that are going to be useful and helpful for you. I wouldn't communicate anything to you if I didn't think it was going to be useful. And so I want you guys to hear that. However, at the same time, like this is a big subject. Amen? Right? Like we can agree, sexuality, big subject. You guys are all familiar with this. This is, this is, this is not something that sh- that's foreign to any of you guys. You live in the United States. If you've watched a football game for more than two minutes, you've been sexualized in some way because of the commercials that are on those. If you've been involved in any sort of conversation with the opposite gender, you've been sexualized in some way. And what I mean is that, what I mean by that word sexualized is you have an opinion about this. Before we even open up a Bible, before we even ask you what your opinion is, you have thoughts, right? You have opinions about what these things are, Okay. But I, but I also want to kind of, kind of uh, do something before we get into all of the content. I want to do two things. The first is this. Each of you have a sheet of paper. We're going to talk about the first two questions, then I'm going to say a couple things, then we're going to talk about the next two questions. But around your tables, I would love you guys to talk about these two things. Try to guess what it is we're going to talk about tonight. I would just love, when you guys hear the phrase gospel sexuality, like what comes to mind? What do you think we're going to talk about? And then the second thing is try to write down as many questions as you can come up with when it comes to this topic. Maybe, maybe these are questions you've had. Maybe these are questions that like, have been asked toward you. Maybe these are questions that like, you're genuinely curious. Like, man, what does the Bible say about this issue or this issue or whatever? And so go ahead and do that. Again, the first and the second question on there, it'll be at the top of your worksheet so you guys can help uh, kind of look through it. But yeah, talk about that in your groups for about three or four minutes, and then we're going to come back. Yes, I know this is awkward. Just embrace the awkward together. That's what we're going to do. Just embrace it together. Let's do this. I think it'll be a little maybe less awkward if we do this. Um, it might sound like it's not going to be awkward because it's a large group. What kind of questions come to mind for you when you think of that phrase, gospel sexuality? We'll just do this as a large group because I think it'll be helpful. Yeah. What is gospel sexuality? Great question. Yeah. Okay. Did you have your hand up? No. Okay. That's fine. Yeah. What do we mean by that? Okay. What other questions come to mind when it comes to this issue? What about like, should we talk about this in church? Is it really that big of a deal? That's a, that's, that's a question. What else? What else comes comes to mind for you guys? Luca. Now, why don't you talk? Let me ask you this. Raise your hand if you, like, relate to Luca's question. I, I, I do. Okay. Yeah? Yeah. Uh, Luca, what was the question? Yeah, why don't people talk about this issue in the church more often? Raise your hand if you relate to that again. I just want to see. Okay, yeah. So, hold on. Keep your hand in the air if that kind of makes you a little angry or, or irritated. Okay. No, that's good. Awesome. What other questions come to mind? We'll do two more. Julia. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think part of the reason is we don't talk about it, right? But that's a good question. Like, why is this such a weird thing to talk about? We all talk about it socially. 
I, th I think we've all had conversations like this. Maybe not like this conversation, what we're going to have tonight, but we talk about the issue of sexuality socially, right? A, a perfect example in, in uh, this context or, you know, in the context of you guys in school is commenting on somebody's appearance in a way that's pleasing, right? Like, oh, he or she looks really great today, you know? Or using it and, you know, saying that in a whole different way that might be a little more vulgar and less respectful, right? We, th that happens on both sides. Like, uh, oh, I can't believe she's wearing that today. She looks like a fill-in-the-blank, right? So, but that's a, you know, so, like, we talk about it socially, but when we, when we, when we come together to talk about it, this issue, it, it can be strange or, or weird. That's good. What else? One more. Another question. Anyone? Lydia? Yeah. Yeah, this book was written 2,000 years ago. What does it have to say about sexuality today? Why does it matter? Like, I, if it was written 2,000 years ago, does that make it, like, irrelevant or, you know, for, for today's culture? Have things changed in 2,000 years that make us address these things differently? That's a great question. I think that's, that's good. But there's, there's no way for us to cover the full, like, breadth of this topic in the next 40 minutes. Like, it's, it's just not going to happen. And for those of you who know me, we're probably going to go over 40 minutes. I'll just warn you because, because I have a lot to give you, and, but I think it's going to be really helpful for you as you're thinking about these things with friends, as you're thinking about these things uh, with your family members, as you're thinking about these things on your own. And, and so I, I would like us to think about these things further than just this conversation. And so here's, here's the deal. If I kind of perk your curiosity through this conversation and you want to think about these things more, let me know and I will give you some resources and things that, that will help you think about these things more, okay? And maybe help you uh, think about these things more specifically, right? So maybe you're in here and you have a lot of questions about the LGBTQ community and what the world, the church, what's their stance with those things or whatever, right? There are resources for that. Maybe you have questions about marriage. Maybe you have questions about sex. Is premarital sex okay, right? There are resources for that that are available. We're going to hit all of these issues broadly. We're not going to dig into any one issue specifically because gospel sexuality isn't just about one subject. There's, there's a lot of things that fit into that. Yes, Cy? You said like eight letters. What's that mean? Yeah. yeah. It, it's uh, lesbian, gay, okay, L, G, B, bisexual, L, G, B, T, transgender, Q, questioning, I, intersex. That's what those, but under that category, there's about 30 different things that fall into that category. I have a list of those things if you would like them. I will print that off to you before you leave and hand it to you so you, you know what that covers if you would like. I didn't print it off because I didn't want to give you guys too much information. Um, but but there's, there's a lot that falls into that category, so I appreciate you you asking that question. My hope during this time is to give you an introduction to these things. I just want this to be a broad overview, okay? And a lot of the material that we're going to get from our, our, our time together has been adapted from a training that I sat in by an organization called Harvest USA. And so tonight we're going to get an overview of what the Bible has to say about sexuality, okay? And we will practically think through how we can engage people struggling in these areas with the gospel. So I want you to hear that. We're going to talk about what does the Bible say about this and how can we engage people struggling in these areas with the gospel. Those are the two things that we're going to really tackle tonight, okay? Sexual issues are a really big part of my own story, 
Okay? As a young man, I was introduced to pornography at a very early age. Um, this was actually during the summer between my first and second grade year in elementary schools when I was introduced to these things. And for as long as I can remember, I thought of sex as something that was for my own benefit. Okay? This led to a distorted view of what it meant to be a man. This led to a distorted view of women. And this led to a distorted view of sexuality in general and what it means. Okay? As a teenager, I was, I was pro-everything. Pro-everything, right? So when I was your age, I was pro-gay, lesbian, transgender, whatever. I was, I was pro-sex before marriage. I thought that was normal. And it wasn't until after my conversion to Jesus when I was 18 years old that I actually began to be challenged in my own perspective when it came to these issues. And the challenge actually came this way. I started opening up my Bible. I started reading it for myself. And I started seeing things that were very, very different from what I believed. And it caused a, a little crisis in my mind of like, what in the heck do I do with what I think about these issues? Because it seems to disagree with what the Bible says. And this kind of led to a, a path that I, I went down as I wrestled with and grew in studying these things, thinking about these things, and, and having conversations about these things. And I now affirm what I would say is a scriptural view, a, a biblical view of sexuality and marriage. You'll hear me link those two things together because I don't think you can separate them. Okay? God created humanity, male and female, and established marriage to be a covenant between one man and one woman for life. Okay? God created humanity, male and female, and established marriage to be a covenant union between those two people, one man and one woman for life. But gospel sexuality is so much bigger than gay marriage, transgenderism, and sex before marriage. It's bigger than that. If we're only thinking about sexuality in terms of the political issues, we're thinking too small. Okay, The whole point of gathering, gathering together tonight isn't just to give you a bunch of biblical evidence to put in your shotgun to shoot at somebody when, they're, when they disagree with the Bible. I don't want to just give you a bunch of things like, oh, here's what the Bible says about this. right? Because I think that, that, that doesn't necessarily prove to be very helpful all of the time. I think the Bible is very helpful, but I think when we get things in the Bible that might disagree from how the world thinks, thinks things, we use it as a weapon rather than a tool to help people see and know Jesus better. I think you guys all know what I'm talking about, right? I think we've all seen pictures of, of the guys with picket signs out in front of some sort of rally that has a, you know, something along the lines of saying, like, God hates fags, right? People use the truth of the Bible as a weapon to hurt, and that's not what we want to do tonight. What we want to do tonight is, is, is help you think through how these truths of the gospel and how the truths of, of what Jesus communicates to us in the Bible help us navigate the issues of sexuality in our culture. And, he, and here's the thing, there are a ton of them. There are a ton of them. So, what is gospel sexuality, right? You asked that question earlier. It's a great question. Well, and kind of like what I said earlier, we've, we've all been sexualized. We all have an opinion about what sex is. We have a, an opinion or a perspective about its function, about its purpose, about what it means, about how valuable or not valuable it is. But we, have a, we, have a, we have an idea of what we think these things are. And this makes the need to teach on sexuality and the gospel high. Not just sexuality, not just the gospel, but both together in the same conversation because the gospel the good news of Jesus and what he did and accomplished in this life has a lot to say when it comes to these issues. After writing one of the biggest statements about the gospel and what Christians believe about Jesus, Paul, in the 12th chapter of the book of Romans, writes this. And this is what I want our attitude to be as we approach these issues. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies 
as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I think this captures well what we want to do tonight. We want to corporately, together as a group, present ourselves to God in worship, saying, Lord, Lord, we love you, we honor you, we lift you up, and, and we want to know what you say about these issues so that we can help others and so that we can understand you and what you want and how you designed us to be better. We don't want to be shaped by the world's perspective on these issues. We want to be shaped by God's perspective on these issues. And so we want the Lord to renew our minds. We want him to continue the transforming work of the gospel in us. And so for those of you who are big note takers, uh, there's three blanks on your worksheet. Here's, here's what they are. Gospel sexuality is first biblical. What I mean by this is, is simply that we're not going to rely on external sources to try to reinvent something. We're, we're, we're going to rely on the Bible. We're going to rely on the scriptures and how they help us think through the issues of sexuality. Gospel sexuality isn't just biblical. It's also Christ-centered. We're going to commit to the reality that only Jesus and his gospel have the power to change people. Let me say that again. Only Jesus and his gospel have the power to change people. There's no amount of arguing or convincing that you can do to change somebody. Only Christ can change people. And so when we engage and talk about these issues with our friends, when we, when we debate maybe or, or maybe even argue about these issues, it's not about being right. It's about seeing Christ transform other people to become more like Jesus himself. Christ alone serves as our example for how we can love God and love people well. Jesus does the work of transformation in others and gives us insight into how we can be faithful in doing our part. And then finally, gospel sexuality, it, it talks about sex. We should never speak of sex in a, in, a, in, a, in a way that's vague and general. We should always be specific, I think, in, in the way that we talk about it. If we want to be helpful with the people in our lives, we, we, we've got to get specific. We've got to get into the details. We've got to talk about this for real. And so as I thought about issues in our culture regarding sexuality, these are things that came to mind for me, okay? And, and I think this will help you understand what I mean more when I think of gospel sexuality. Uh, hookup culture, right? Hookup culture. This idea of, of people getting together outside of the context of marriage and the expectation of our, of our society, of, of the, the United States, that getting fulfillment sexually is so much a part of our identity. It's to be explored and it's to be satisfied outside of the context of marriage. Here's what this looks like in school. You get a different status among your friends when you've explored sexually with other people. When you've had sexual participation or sexual involvement with somebody, your status rises in our society. You get seen as a man when you lose your virginity or a true woman when you lose your virginity in our culture and in our society, right? And hookup culture, this idea that when we get together and we have intense emotional feelings for one another, we need to hook up and we, need to, we, we can just hook up and then we can separate, right? All of these things influence um, and are influenced by our view of sexuality. But then also, uh, I'm gonna call this gender dysphoria. I know that's a big word, but typically when I'm talking about gender dysphoria, this is most commonly known as being transgender. That's a word that you guys have probably heard. 
And, uh, but we're also talking about a, a wide variety of other issues that are not just being transgender. For help on our, on our understanding of this, if you want to know what this means and dig into this, come talk to me. I'll give you some resources and we can talk about gender dysphoria a little bit more. But this is transgenderism. It's trying to change your gender from one to the other. It's saying, well, since I feel like a woman, I'm a woman. I'm not a man, even though biologically, physically, I'm a man. I feel like a woman, right? These are all issues of gender dysphoria. But then also pornography, um, the sexual exploitation of people for a viewer's own sexual satisfaction and fulfillment, right? Uh, porn can be found in anything from, a, from risque sexual material or, or in a magazine or, or videos online, photos, stories on social media, right? You guys, here's the thing. You know where to find this stuff. I, I'm, I'm almost certain many of you know where to find this stuff or have interacted or encountered with it, whether it be on accident or on purpose at some point in your life. And the reason why I know that is because statistics show that by the time you're in high school, you've been exposed to it at some point. Everybody has. Everybody has. Because what I would classify as porn is also something that you would see in a beer ad on TV. Same-sex attraction. This is what you'll hear me when, when talking about being gay or being attracted to the opposite sex. I will always phrase that as same-sex attraction. These are people who are attracted sexually to people who are the same gender as them. The reason why I think this is because I think, I think this kind of idea of same-sex attraction more gets to the heart of what's going on in somebody rather than using phrases like gay or homosexual because same-sex attraction is the temptation that people are struggling with. Just like I struggle with attraction for people of the opposite gender, there are some people who struggle with sexual attraction to the same gender. You guys tracking with me? Does this make sense? Great. The next thing is masturbation, right? It's personally fulfilling your own sexual desires by yourself. Sexting, the exchange of erotic language, language or images for sexual fulfillment with other people, um, and marriage. And I put marriage on here because I think our view of marriage can be often shaped by our own opinion or our culture's opinion instead of the scriptures. So as you can see through all these issues that I've just talked about, it's, it's way bigger than just LGBTQI stuff. Gospel sexuality is a huge deal, and, and, and I think our views on marriage bear significant weight on how we approach issues of sexuality. So let's open up our Bibles to Matthew 19. If you've got a Bible with you, great. If you don't, don't worry. I will be reading from it here. I promise you that I'm reading from the Bible. This isn't something that I wrote on my own. Um, and like I said, I wanted, to, I wanted to say this to you. I know that this, you got notes in front of you. you got a guy talking in the front of the room. I know that this feels like school. But the reason why we, we're going into so much information on this is because, one, the Bible says a lot about this. But, two, I really think this is going to be very helpful for you. And what I mean is this. I don't think this is going to answer all your questions. But what I think is it, it's going to get you on a trajectory to start actually asking questions. Because I think the moment we start asking questions about the Bible and what it says about this is the moment where we actually start learning and growing. And so in Genesis 2, God creates marriage. He says that marriage is good. And he makes human beings, both male and female, in Genesis 1. And so in Genesis 1, you get this like picture like, a, have, you, have you guys ever been on a plane? Raise your hand if you've been on a plane. Like flying over, you know, you can see massive amounts of land at the same time, but you can't really see the details or what's going on. Even the mountains kind of look flat, you know, when you're above them. But... And so in Genesis 1, we see this huge flyover of creation. God is doing massive amounts of creative work in like very short 
sentences. It's like God spoke and light came in. Like, okay, that was a sentence and all this stuff just happened. Or God did this, this, and this. And in this little space, he creates like plants, animals, you know, birds, fish, land comes out of the water. Like there's just crazy stuff happening in Genesis 1 and the pace is really, really quickly. It's, it's moving fast. And then Genesis 2, it slows down. And where Genesis 1 is like a flyover of creation, Genesis 2 is like a road trip through creation. And it, it gives you the opportunity to stop and appreciate the details of what's going on. Specifically in Genesis 2, uh, the author is emphasizing God's best creative work. You guys, people, human beings. Genesis 2 is all about the creation of human beings. And so in, in, in Genesis 2, we see God's first words on, on marriage in Genesis 2, 24. He made uh, human beings, male and female, together, they reflect God's image to the world. And, and Genesis 2.24 gives us this beautiful understanding of marriage, and Jesus in Matthew 19 quotes this passage. He's talking to Pharisees, and he quotes Genesis 2.24 to them. So we're going to read Matthew 19 real quick. He says, he says this in uh, verse 1, Now when Jesus had finished saying these things, he went away from Galilee and entered into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees, does anybody know what a Pharisee is? I know it sounds like a weird word that we don't hear about a lot. Does anybody know what a Pharisee is? Anyone? Luca? You're... You know what they are. I know you do. Yeah, they, the religious leaders. Yeah, totally. That's perfect, perfect, perfect answer. They were the religious leaders of Jewish culture. Think guys like me who were Jews 2,000 years ago. But they weren't necessarily following Jesus, right? That's a big difference that I have with Pharisees. But from a, from a, from a society per- perspective, from a town perspective, these were the religious elite. They were the religious leaders. So they questioned Jesus. They asked Jesus a question. They say, Jesus, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Is it lawful to get a divorce for any cause? And Jesus this puts him in a very, very interesting situation. You see, the Pharisees were trying to trap Jesus so they could commit him of a crime. And so they asked him this question specifically because it would have done two things. If Jesus would have answered this question, yes, well, then he would be in trouble. And if he answered the question, no, he would be in trouble. If he had said no, then the Pharisees could damage his credibility by saying that Jesus would be in disagreement with popular opinion. It was popular opinion in that culture that there were reasons that God would approve of divorce. But if Jesus said yes, then the Pharisees could have accused him of being like soft on the Bible because God was not very soft on divorce in the Bible. And so either way, Jesus would have been in trouble. But Jesus, instead of directly answering their question, he responds like a ninja. You know, Rather than answering their question directly, he, he says this. Have you not read? I love this. So Jesus is talking to like religious people. These religious people would have had large portions of the Bible memorized. And Jesus is about to ask him, he's like, well, like, haven't you read your Bible? <laughs> but then he, he quotes from like page two of the Bible. So he's like, not only have you not read your Bible, but haven't you like gotten past page two? You know, you religious teacher, haven't you gotten past page two? Haven't you read that he who created them created them male and female and said, therefore a man shall, this is him quoting Genesis 2.24, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What God has joined together, let no man separate. The Pharisees knew their Bible, so they pushed back. 
They're like, well, in the law, Moses, it says that we can get a divorce. And then Jesus later in Matthew 19 says, yeah, Moses permitted divorce because of sin in their hearts. Because of the hardness of their hearts, Moses permitted divorce. But in the beginning, it was not so. God did not originally design marriage to be this way. Before sin entered into the world, God created marriage. And so that's what we need to focus on. That's the ideal. That's what we need to see. And after Jesus' teaching on marriage, this is really, really, really interesting. It says this in verse 10. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, is it better not to marry? Isn't it better to just not marry anyone? Isn't it better to just stay single? So the disciples understood what Jesus was saying. Jesus was giving a very hard teaching on marriage. He was showing how difficult it would be to one man, one woman for life. And the disciples see how difficult that is and are like, isn't it just better to be single? Now in our culture, that's a hard thing to think about because everybody expects you to get married and have kids and live a happy life with a dog and, and blue shutters with a red door in your house and a tire swing in the front yard, like the American dream. Get married, have kids, whatever. But Jesus here does something very different. The disciples say, is it better for a man to not marry at all? And Jesus says this, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom is given. And he actually starts to give a teaching on the value of being single. That God actually calls some to be single. And the point is this. It's honorable. I want you guys to hear this. It's honorable for a man or a woman to be married or choose celibacy. A life of singleness. None of those in the eyes of God are less honorable. Both are are held in high view in God's eyes. Our choice as people created in God's image are either to get married or not get married and be celibate. Not fulfill our sexual desires because any fulfillment of sexual desires outside of marriage is against what God has created, against what God has designed. This is a foundational thing we must consider when it comes to specific issues like like porn or same-sex attraction or gender dysphoria or hookup culture because uh, uh, what we believe about sexuality will always depend on how we see God in marriage. What we believe about sexuality will always depend on what we believe about God and what we believe about marriage. If you don't believe me, try it. What you believe about God and what you believe about marriage will always point you toward what you believe about sexuality. If you believe that you can do whatever you want sexually, well, that says something about your belief about God and your belief about marriage. If you believe that marriage is way better than being single, that says something about what you believe about God and about marriage. If you believe being single is much better than being married, that says something about what you believe about God and what you believe about marriage. And so the core issue when it comes to what the Bible says is we have to understand and wrap our hearts around what what the Word says about creation, how God made us, who He made us to be, and the union that he made us for in, in being united to, with a man and a woman in marriage. Any distortion of God's design regarding these things falls under the category of sin. Sin is the essence of overstepping the proper boundaries the Lord has established for us. So think about it this way. God's design for human beings when it comes to sex and marriage is this, okay? We'll just, we'll just say this. It, it creates a lane for us to walk down, okay? We can either choose to be to be single, or we can choose to get married, but, but we're doing it this way because this is how we live in a way that honors God and how he designed us. 
But what sin tempts us to do is it says, okay, I see this boundary here, but, but this feels really good. And so I'm going to step over here and I'm going to create my own lane and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to declare that, you know, whatever I decide is good is good. And whatever I decide is bad is bad. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get out of God's lane a little bit and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do my own thing over here. And that's what sin tempts us to do. Here's the thing. Every single person in this room has felt that pull. So you know what I'm talking about. You felt that pull. The pull to compromise what you know is good and what you know is right because it feels better. God has declared what is good and what's not good, and sin distorts that rule and reshapes it to fit with our preferences. We also see that when it comes to the gospel, God's primary concern is not to change behavior. This is huge. This is huge. If somebody is is gay, I want you to hear this. If somebody is gay and struggling with some temptations of attraction to the same gender, God's primary concern is not to make them straight. His primary concern is not to make them heterosexual or attracted to somebody of the opposite gender. It's not to make them straight. God's primary concern is to make them like Jesus. And that should be our primary concern. That's why this is gospel sexuality. It's not just about what behavior is right and wrong. It's about what our behavior points to, and we're going to get to that in a minute. God's primary concern is not to change behavior. That means this. If somebody is struggling with with sexual lust, okay, that is destructive to them and to those around them, God's primary concern isn't just to get them to stop doing what they're doing. God's primary concern is to get them to turn toward Christ and his work. And through Christ and his work, that person will stop doing what they're doing. Because God is transforming their heart. He's transforming them internally. He's giving them his spirit so that they can respond in faith to God and then begin following Jesus, empowered by energy of the spirit, not empowered by energy of their own effort. God's primary concern is not to change behavior It's to make people like Jesus. As I've talked with people um, on the various issues of sexuality, one of the most frustrating questions I've ever been asked is this. John, um, is is there such thing as a gay Christian? Is that a thing? That's one of the most frustrating questions for me. Do you know why? It's impossible to answer. Simply. You can answer it complicated, in a complicated, but it's impossible to answer simply. Here's why. John, is there such thing as a gay Christian? Well, if I say no, then I shut the door for the kingdom of God to be available for somebody who struggles with same-sex attraction, right? But then if I say yes, yeah, there, there's such thing as a gay Christian. Well, then what I do is I, I give permission for somebody living in sin to continue living in sin and follow Jesus at the same time. So no matter how you answer the question, you're in trouble. And so, and so I, I think the problem is the, the term gay Christian. You see, when you begin to define someone else or yourself like this, you begin to attach a word to their identity. That becomes who they are. The only thing that can define my identity and your identity is Christ and Christ alone and where you stand with him. Your behavior does not define who you are, but your behavior points to what you put your value in. But it does not define who you are. Your identity is not what you do. I want you to hear that. And so if there's somebody in your school who's struggling with same-sex attraction, 
Their identity is not in that attraction or that temptation. Their identity is in their position before God. And if their position before God is, 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 is lost, if they're far from God, well, then that should compel us to move near to them, not away from them, near to them, to help them see and experience the beauty of the gospel and how Christ transforms the heart. The only thing that defines our identity is Christ and Christ alone. And when we frame how we view someone by their behavior, we fail to get to the heart of what's going on. And so I've said a lot so far. Is there anything that you've heard that's, that's, that's been maybe helpful, surprising, confusing? Is there any sort of questions that you guys have? How are you guys doing? Doing okay? Are you with me? Yeah? Do you have a question about anything? I've said a lot. I've like, I'm, like, I'm like opening up the fire hose and just spraying everybody. So I, like, if, if you have a question, that's, that's okay. It's a good little uh, mini example of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of my, my Bible study leaders in college, um, he was one of my roommates, he was one of the strongest Christians I know. Mm-hmm. He was really real with us, and he, was, he told me about times in his life, and even when he comes to college, so like, recent or in the present, at least back then, like he struggled with same-sex attraction. Yeah. You would never guess mm-hmm. or anything. Um, like, there wasn't any character traits that would maybe suggest that or anything. And I'm not trying to chuck stereotypes. Right. I knew, I knew people um, before that in my life who were gay and, and had different yeah. um, gender dysphoria and stuff like that, but that became like real to me because like, he was my Bible sailor, he was my, um, he became my roommate, like mm-hmm. he's a really good friend, um, and it's so cool to see like he's married, having kids, like, um, like how the Lord like redeemed that situation and all that, but um, like, so when, when John's talking about same-sex attraction, that's exactly like how my friend phrased it. Yeah. Identify with Christ first and mm-hmm. all things. And it's like this college is definitely a safe space where you know, that comes more acceptably. Um, right. Like, oh, that's, that's just my thing. Mm-hmm. And, and then it's easier now to treat it as a, a saving relationship. Yeah. No, that's good. Thank you. Yeah, these issues are much closer to home than you think they are. There might even be people in this room who are struggling in these areas and just too afraid to communicate to, about it because they're afraid of what other people are going to think of them. They're afraid to come to people in the church because they're afraid they're going to receive judgment and condemnation. They're afraid to go to their friends because they don't want to lose their friendships or make their friends view them in a way that's different. And so this is a, this is a really, for, for somebody who's struggling in the area of same-sex attraction specifically, it is a hard thing because they're lonely. They're lonely. And we need to begin to fix our eyes off of their behavior and see the whole person if we're going to help them see the beauty of the gospel and how the gospel interacts with and speaks to these things. And so if, you, if you've got your Bible, I'm going to go to Luke. We're going to be in Luke 6. And there's two verses in Luke 6 that give this, this tree metaphor that we're going to kind of piggyback on for the rest of our time together. It's in Luke 6, 43 through 45. And it says this. For no good tree bears bad fruit, 
Nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person, listen to this, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of the evil treasure of his heart produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Jesus gives this really, really helpful illustration for us when it comes to sin. And here's the thing. Every single thing that I'm going to have to say about you tonight, we're going to take it and we're going to apply it to sexual issues, right? So, you know, uh, lust, both same-sex lust and, and opposite-sex lust, um, you know, viewing porn or masturbation or hookup culture or weird or, or distorted views of marriage, right? All, all of these things, we're going to take this idea and we're going to apply it to these things. But, but this can be applied to any area of sin, any heart desire for sin that's showing up in behavior, right? This can speak to somebody's selfishness, somebody's, somebody's greed, somebody's pride, right? Somebody's laziness, right? It can speak to all of these different areas, somebody's propensity to lie, Whatever it is, you can apply these things to it because Jesus in this passage is speaking of sin generally. He's not just talking about sexual sin. He's talking about sin generally. The whole point of what Jesus is getting at here is that sin does not originate from outside of a person. Sin is not something out there that I need to hide myself from. Sin is actually something that's in here. It's in me. The source of sin is the heart. It, it's me and it affects my behavior. It's not about my behavior, but it affects my behavior. The heart influences my behavior. The Bible consistently pushes us to go beyond the exterior and look a layer deeper. It pushes us to go deeper. It pushes us beyond the surface. Many of us, our knee-jerk reaction, if someone were to come out to us as gay, was to like, well, that's, that's wrong. It's sinful. Like, you shouldn't do that. And we immediately start correcting behavior. We fail to get to the heart. We might be right in what we're saying. And what, what I mean is this. We might be right in saying, oh, this is against what God desires. But when our knee-jerk reaction is just to correct behavior, we miss the point of the gospel. If we're just trying to show them how wrong they are, we might not be incorrect in, in what we're saying, but we're not being very helpful in the way we're going about doing it. There's an issue with being the person who responds by only convincing someone their behavior is sinful. You're focusing on the behavior. You're not getting to the heart. So we're going to take this idea of a tree and we're going to stretch it a little bit. Um, you'll see this illustration of a tree here. Uh, it's drawn by somebody way more talented than I am. And the Bible teaches us that sin has affected the entire person. And so as we look at each of these areas, we're going to see two characteristics of each of these areas. I got 10 minutes to do this, so it's not going to happen. We're going to go over, but this is going to be really, really helpful for you. I really think so. Okay, so you have the seed, which is the heart. Now think about a tree just for a minute. You plant a seed from the ground. How big is a seed usually? Like, it's teeny, teeny, tiny, right? But out of the seed produces life, right? And all of a sudden, years later, you have this great big giant oak tree in your front yard that's just amazing and a source of shade and frustration when it drops sticks on your lawn, right? Like, this is, this is a tree. But there are various layers to this tree, and they all function differently, right? You have, you have the seed, which kind of starts everything, but you also have the soil, what's surrounding the tree, Right? If you have bad soil, is the tree going to grow? 
No, and if you have bad soil, you might have a really great big tree, but then all of a sudden it'll get wilted and it'll start dying because it's not being nurtured by the ground around it. But then you also have the roots, right? We can't even see the roots, but the roots are the most important part of the tree because through the roots, the tree receives its nourishment, right? And the trunk, right? The trunk supports the beautiful display that we see in the leaves and the branches and the fruit. Well, the fruit, we, we love. I went to Tanner's Orchard yesterday with my son, man. I love the fruit, of the apple. It was amazing. There's like 70 different kinds of apples that I didn't even know existed out at Tanner's Orchard. They're all very tasty. But we, the fruit is what we, we pick and we enjoy. But it takes so much to get to the fruit of the tree, right? You guys tracking with me? Okay. The seed is the heart. Out of the seed produces the whole tree. You guys will see this on the back side of your notes. All of this stuff. The seed is the heart. Out of the seed produces the whole, the, the whole tree is produced. This is what the Lord is primarily concerned with. Let me say that again. This is what the Lord is primarily concerned with. God is not primarily concerned with your behavior. God is primarily concerned with your heart. He's primarily concerned with your heart. The heart is the core of the person. The Bible wasn't written by scientists and biologists, right? So they weren't thinking like the actual like physical organ that we know as the heart that pumps blood through the body they were referring to the heart in a, in a way that was a metaphor it, it was symbolizing someone's thoughts attitudes emotions affections desires the heart pointed to the inner work of a person their inner life genesis eight twenty one reminds us of the fallen reality of the heart as we talk about all these we're going to talk about how the world has affected each of these areas how each of these areas is prone to being fallen but then how jesus through the gospel redeems each of these different areas of us as people, and that affects people who are struggling with things sexually. Sin changes and affects everything in our world. Our hearts are bent toward rebellion against God. They're bent toward evil, and this is essential for us to understand. Look, when trying to understand how someone's heart is involved with their sin, think about it this way. What have they convinced themselves is worth pursuing? Right? What are they trusting in? These are questions that will point to the heart in a person, right? So when you come to me in my office and you say, John, I'm struggling with X, right? You come to my house, John, I'm struggling with X. This sin is really getting at me. What I'm going to start to think is, okay, what are they trusting in? What are they putting their chips in? What do they value, right? These help us place, see where we're placing our allegiance. For example, I'm struggling with the way people in my class view me. I'm tired of getting picked on. Okay. What are they putting their trust in? Well, they're putting their trust in the opinions of other people. Why are they putting their trust in the opinions of other people? Well, because they want to be liked. Why do they want to be liked? Well, because they want to be somebody important. You see how it starts with, well, I don't like getting picked on. I don't like getting picked on either. But what's, as you dig through, as you start asking questions, as you start to see what people value, as you start to see what people are trusting, and it exposes small idols that we're worshiping in our lives. Now, that doesn't mean in this situation that the people picking on this person are in the right. No, no, no. They're totally in the wrong. That is jacked up. Nobody should be picking on or making fun of anybody. But I'm just trying to think of an example that could be used as a teachable moment for this person and not put so much stock in other people's opinions. It gets to the heart, not the behavior. I could just say, oh, well, it's really jacked up. People are making fun of you. Just try to ignore it. Well, let's be honest. How helpful is that? (laughs) It's not helpful. It's, not, like, it's impossible to ignore getting picked on. It hurts. It's painful. It makes me feel alone. It makes me feel isolated. It makes me feel like nobody likes me. It makes me feel like nobody cares. 
But Jesus fundamentally changes the heart of the person. He doesn't just focus and think about our behavior, right? 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, anyone who's in Christ is a new creation. They're a new creature. They're a new tree. The old is dead and the new has come. This is why we, we fail if we only spend time talking about biblical sexuality and what it is and what it isn't. We must be people who are bent on talking about the truths of the gospel and all that God does through faith in Christ and see how it transforms people struggling with sexual sin in the heart. In the heart. And so think about this with me. How is this helpful? Well, this is helpful for a couple of ways. When attempting to engage someone at the heart level, we know and we must pray and seek God for their transformation because there's nothing you and I can do to change the heart, right? We can't change their heart. And so knowing that our role is to get to the heart, we have to lean into God and his power to do it. We can't, there's no amount of arguing, there's no amount of convincing, there's no amount of like, hey bro, like, do you see this? Do you see this? Hey, do you see this? No, that it, we have to pray to God. We have to get on our knees, both maybe physically, but also like symbolically and just say, Lord, I need your help. I can't change this person. I can't change my friend. I can't change my parents. I can't change any of these people. And so whether, whether or not somebody's struggling sexually or you're being mistreated or you're, 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 you, whatever it is, it doesn't just have to be a sexual thing. We need to pray and seek the Lord for transformation. No amount of convincing or argument is gonna change somebody's heart. Only God can do that. We're only called to be faithful and continuously engaging people with the good news of Jesus and being consistent over and over and over on repeat. We are, we are present and we are involved and we are with them and we are telling them the truth and we are loving them well. But here's another thing when it, when it comes to the, to the heart. Maybe something that would be really helpful for you is to spend time intentionally praying for people in your life who are struggling with sexual issues, including yourself. I've found that I'm better at loving people when I'm praying for them when they're not looking. I'm far better at loving people when I'm praying for them. And so knowing that God is the only one who can change the heart drives me to pray and seek God for their good. This is, this is not just an LGBTQ thing, right? This is not just a, this is a sexual immorality thing. This is things like porn or adultery or hooking up or premarital sex or fantasizing about somebody in a way that you shouldn't or longing for something in a way that you shouldn't. We love far better when we pray for those struggling with these issues directly. When we think of people in a biblical way, engaging the heart, engaging the heart, we aren't seeing a need for behavior modification. Instead, we're seeing a need for heart transformation and trusting God to change their behavior. Because when the heart changes, the tree changes. The fruit will change. We point out sin, but we also must remember that we're not defined by our sin. Let me say that again. We point out sin in other people's lives. We say, hey, bro, you're wandering. But we also recognize that people are not defined by their sin. Why do you think focusing on behavior doesn't work? It's because we're thinking too small. But focusing on behavior is easy, isn't it? Right? Like, it's easy to say, hey, you're being dumb. Don't do that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, that's an easy fix. 
hey, put that down. Hey, don't talk to them that way. Watch your mouth. These are all behavior fixes, but they don't get to the heart. They fail to get to the heart, and we must be people who are driven to get to the heart. But the soil also plays a part. This is context, right? This could be physical characteristics, medical or psychological issues. It could be family influences, right? Genetics or upbringing, family culture, influences of family peers, right? I grew up in a really liberal family, and so my mind always thought that way. Cultural influences, right? So think about it this way. If a boy doesn't play football or a girl doesn't want to hang out with the girls, well, they're already put in a category where they don't fit with other people in their gender, and so they start to think, well, maybe I'm not actually a girl. Maybe I'm not actually a boy. Because we've defined, our culture has defined what it means to be a boy this way or what it means to be a girl this way. And so if a boy likes to dance, we don't have a category for that in our brain. And so boys maybe might start to doubt their manhood because they like this activity. It sounds really silly when I say this, but we do it all the time. Cultural influences, our soil plays a part in these issues. Spiritual warfare plays a part in these issues, right? The entire point of youth ministry in the church, are, are, we're supposed to be a place where you can have good soil. But sometimes that doesn't happen here. And that grieves me. Because sometimes you come here and you might not leave knowing the good soil that's here. You might leave in a, in a poor interaction with a, with a peer or maybe a, 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 you know, a leader's having a rough day and they might say something to you and unintentionally hurt you. You, you, you see the fallen nature of even, even the church here in this environment. But personality and gifts, right? People experiencing same-sex attraction typically have personalities and gifts that don't fall into cultural stereotypes, right? People who struggle with being attracted to the same gender don't fit into our cultural categories of what it means to be a boy and a girl. It doesn't mean they're any less boy and a girl. It just means our culture and the way that our culture has defined something, they don't fit into that. Peer influence or trauma, right? All of these things can be affected by, by sin. The people that we walk with are not just sinners. They're sufferers. We're not just sinners. We've not just been affected by sin in, in the way that we contribute negatively to it. We've also been hurt by sin. We don't just sin. We also suffer in this life. We've been hurt. We've experienced pain. But we also need to treat people not just like they're the problem, but also realize that they've, they've been affected by sin. They've been hurt. They've been in pain. And we need to think about how that plays into everything else that's going on in their life. We can typically either emphasize the sin or the suffering when we engage people with the gospel, right? Everybody knows somebody who can be all about correction and not compassionate, right? Maybe for a lot of you, you think of your parents, they're really, really hard on correction, making sure you, your behavior changes. But they might not be very compassionate. But your friend at school, they're like super compassionate. But they don't want to correct you and tell you when you're doing wrong. It's not either or, it's, it's both. We need both correction and compassion. And we need to hold these both in tension as a combination of interacting with people, both as sinners and as sufferers in this life. And God in the gospel redeems our context. He places us in the local church where we're free to leverage our, our God-given differences for the glory of his name and the expansion of his kingdom, right? God places us in the church where our differences are actually valuable. He puts us in an environment where our differences are, are, are displayed for the glory of God alone. 
And so we've got we've to take soil seriously. As we think about another person's context and, and think about where they are, it, it's, it's helpful to get to the heart when we think about context, but it also helps us in walking with people who are struggling with sexual issues, right? Walking with people who are struggling sexually, it's so much more than just calling them to change when you think about the soil, when you think about their family life, when you think about our culture, when you think about our upbringing, when you think about if there's any sort of maybe mental thing going on. It's so much bigger than just, hey, you need to change. We need to remember that we're not just contributors to the sin of the world. We're also victims of it. We've also been hurt by it. And so as sufferers, many people struggling sexually have histories of abuse. Right? A lot of people who are same-sex attracted or struggling in these areas, they have a history of abuse in their life. A lot of people who don't know what to do when it comes to these issues or people who are promiscuous, you know, people who like to flirt, like to get physical outside of the context of marriage, people who are looking at porn, they might have been abused. And this is how they're, they're, they're expressing that pain now, trying to self-medicate and make themselves feel better. The roots are our desires. But each person, when, is, we, when he is tempted, this is James, he says, but each person, when he is tempted, he's lured away and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings death. Our desires, our good desires, turn into demands, and then those demands turn into idols. And here's, here's what I mean. Self-image, what do you think that means? Self-image. When I say self-image, if you want to have a good self-image, what does that mean? Sai? Yeah, yeah. Which might mean dressing, right? It might mean the way you talk. could be the way you walk, right? Self-image. Is that a bad desire or a good desire to have a good self-image? Is that a bad desire or a good desire? It's a good desire. It's not a bad thing, right? This is not a bad thing. But when it turns into a demand, it becomes an idol. When I start to demand having a good self-image and then I start to get disappointed or discouraged, that I don't have that self-image, then I start to beat myself up. Then I, then I say, I must have this. I'm gonna do whatever it takes to get good self-image. And so if I have a friend who says, I'm less of a man because I'm a virgin, I'm gonna do whatever it takes to have a good self-image. And so you know what? I'll lose my virginity because I want this. But what, about, what about being affirmed? What about security? What about being loved? These are, these are all good things. But these good desires, when we, when we start to demand them, I must be loved. I must have security. I'm, I must be affirmed. I must have people tell me that I'm doing good. That I'm, 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 and, then, and then when we don't get it, we get discouraged. And then, and then we start to compromise and we say, I, I must have this. I'm gonna do whatever it takes to get this. And it turns into an idol. 
And I think many of us have felt the tension of having a great desire that led to an idol that then led us to compromise sexually and maybe do something that we, we never would have done years ago or we, 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 we might have even said, no, this is never going to happen. And yet we, we, we compromise and we, we decide to, to, to go off course. But it started with a good desire. Christ gives us new desires in the gospel. I, I, w- I want you to hear this. In, in Christ, we get new desires. We get new desires. Galatians 5 says, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. You won't fulfill the desires of the flesh. If you lean on the power of the Spirit, you won't give in to the desires of the flesh. The desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. They're opposed to each other. Christ gives us new desires that are opposed to our our desires of sin. And so one of the things that we can get out of this image, right, this, this root image, is that our behaviors are always connected to our desires. They're always connected to our desires. Every time you and I do something, it's connected to a desire. It's connected to something we want, something we value, something we treasure. We're telling ourselves, I must blank. Anytime you've ever disobeyed your parents, you were compelled by a desire to do it. Anytime you've ever turned against the Lord, you were moved by a desire to do it, and that desire came from your heart. This also helps us, this helps us see how non-sexual desires can lead people to sexual sin. Non-sexual desires can lead me into sexual sin. Security. Think about it this way. There could be a person who, who, who has rough family life with their parents. They're not noticed by their parents. And then all of a sudden this girl notices them in class. And they're like jazzed. You know what I'm saying? She's cute and, 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 and she's looking at him and he wants to talk to her, right? And so he goes up to her and he talks to her. And then all of a sudden a couple weeks later after, you know, weeks of texting or, or instant messaging or whatever, they start dating. And now he's got this like security that he never had before. He has this love from this person that he never had before. And then she says, hey, I want, I want to sleep with you. I love you. I want to sleep with you. Because in her mind, those two things are connected. But in his mind, he's like, no, 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 I can't do that. I, that's wrong. I shouldn't do that. But I don't want to lose my security. I, have the, I, have the secu- I don't want to lose her. I've lost everybody else. Everybody else has left me. I don't want to lose her. And so he compromises. Sexually. Not because he lusted after this girl, but because he just didn't want to lose another person in his life. Non-sexual desires can move us towards sexual sin. This is so much bigger, so much bigger than just what's right, what's wrong. Yes, what's right and what's wrong is so important, but if we, if we, if we stop at behavior, we miss the point. We miss the point. Think about your own desires for a moment. Get honest with yourself. How have you seen desires show up in your life in a, in a way that led you to fruit that you just don't want to admit that you actually had, behavior that you, you've done, maybe something you're ashamed of?
my whole point is this. We're not going to get into worldview. This is a big deal. I want to talk about this, but it's 8-11, and I need to shut up. <laughs> Otherwise, your parents are going to kill me. I want to talk about worldview, and I want to talk about behavior, but here's the thing. I want you to hear this. Scripture has a lot to say about this. It has a lot to say about this. And I can say this to you guys because you're in high school. I would not say this to middle school students because I do not believe they're mature enough to handle this right now. But if you are in Christ, you have a God-given responsibility to lean in to people struggling with these issues. You have a responsibility to do that. We should not hide from people who are struggling sexually. We should lean in and help them. But here's the thing. We should not do it alone. Because when we do it alone, we are tempted to join them in their sin. We're tempted to compromise. And so I just, I want to encourage you to see gospel sexuality not just as a sexual issue, but a gospel issue. We're not just talking about people's behavior and what's right and what's wrong and what honors God and what doesn't honor God. Yes, this is so important. But even more than that, we want to see people changed to become like Jesus. We don't just want to see their behavior change. We don't just want to see people stop lying. We want to see people honor the truth of God's word with their lives. We don't just want to see people stop looking at porn. We want to see people love other people well and treat them with dignity and respect, not to earn respect because Christ has forgiven them so much that they just can't help but love people well. I want you to be so affected by a deep love for Jesus and what he's accomplished to you that you cannot help but overflow with love and compassion and care and concern for people who are far from God and people who are near to God. Because the reality is, people who are struggling sexually are both far from God and near to God. There are people in the church who struggle sexually, and there are people out of the church who struggle sexually. There are people who love Jesus who struggle sexually, and there are people who don't love Jesus who struggle sexually. This is not an us and them issue. Okay? I'm going to shut up now. I love you guys. I love you, Caleb. Um, if you need to talk more about this, if you want to process this more, if you have questions, please ask. Like, I, I, I love talking about these things um, because I, I think they're really helpful. They've, they've been a tremendous help for me. Uh, this is a big deal to me, not just in the areas of, of sexual sin, but in, in just anything in general. And so just if you need somebody to talk to, please know my door is open uh, just because I don't work here anymore doesn't mean I'm not a member of this church who loves you guys. I'm a member of this church who loves you guys. I'm here for you. Come to my house. I live at 906 Lake Road. Let me pray, and, uh, and, and we'll, we'll shut her down for the night. Lord, you're good. Your faithful love endures forever. Um, God, I'm thankful for uh, the grace given to me by the students here. Uh, I, I went over tonight. I talked too much, and yet uh, I pray that, that whatever was said here if there's anything that it was of you and of your spirit, that it would really uh, just sit in our hearts and in our minds, that we would think about it, meditate on it. God, that would turn us to Jesus. God, we need his help. 
Um, th- this is not easy to talk about. This is not easy to talk with others about. God, it's hard, but we know with your Spirit's help that, that you're faithful and you will help us think through these things well. And so, God, help us to do that. Help us to love people who are struggling sexually in a way that honors Christ and his word and loves well. God, we want to reflect the gospel in everything we do, not just with walking with people who are struggling sexually, but being members of our families, uh, caring for the poor, caring for the people who, who are marginalized and pushed to the side. God, we, we want to love well, and so help us to do that by your Spirit's power. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you guys are dismissed.